0: Welcome to the Dear Doc Podcast, where we will discuss the business of running a dental practice with a panel of experts.
1: Now, your host, Dr. Christopher Huffpower.
0: Hey guys, this is the Dear Doc Podcast, and this is your host, Dr. Christopher Huffpower. Before we begin, I'd like to thank one of our sponsors. How would you like revenue coming into your practice even before you reopen, Abella is the first and only solution that is helping practices to collect more money and faster. The best thing is that you can try it for free from now until June 30th. All you have to do is email info at abellaar.com for more information. That email address, once more, is info at com. And hey, Abella, thanks so much for sponsoring the podcast. Hey guys, this is Doc Huffpower coming to you from my studio here in Alvin, Texas once again. And today I am joined again by Brett, gotcha, Kyle Kyle (laughs) Francis. So for those of you who have seen our podcast before or have seen me interview Kyle before, I have messed with him about his name. I've called him not Patrick. I've called him Patrick. He's actually started changing his signatures in his emails to me. Uh, almost on the daily. So I I get great, great entertainment from that. But uh, today we're going to talk about some really serious, um, some really serious things about different business models, but specifically the DSO slash DPO business model. And and some of the questions that maybe we don't have the vocabulary to ask, maybe some things that I know for myself, um, I was ignorant about. And so I want to bring that information to you guys so that we can answer some bigger questions like, is the DSL model a fit for me? So without any, uh, any further ado, Brett, take it away.
1: <laughs> I love it. Um, all right. So uh, just in case that your, your folks haven't uh, or kind of forgot who I was, so Kyle Francis, I'm the founder and president of PTS, uh, Professional Transition Strategies. I uh, started up the company about 13 years ago and have affiliated or sold about 350 uh, dental practices, um, either to other individuals or to groups. So, and more and more and more groups over time. Um, so maybe maybe a good place to start is, I just wanna make sure, I mean, as a, as a clearing point, right? So you, you partnered with a DSO, right? Correct, and well,
0: DPO, but we'll get into that DPO, later.
1: okay, got it, yep. And um, does everybody know who that is? Or have you talked
0: about that much? Uh, I haven't talked about it much um, because I honestly, I I don't like uh, pushing people and swaying them in that manner, but I I joined and partnered with uh, MB2 and uh, I have been absolutely thrilled, particularly as I'm sure you understand through this entire period of time, (laughs) this whole COVID thing. I, I, I believe I've probably never made a better, a better decision for my sanity and for the health of my practice and for my financial well-being.
1: Yep, good. Well, so yeah, MB2, so just so you know, I I really like them as well. We've partnered a whole bunch of different um, uh, practices with them over the course of time. However, I do like a bunch of them, right? And I think there's kind of uh, pluses and minuses to a lot of different styles and a lot of different ways of doing things. And um, keep in mind, just because I like something doesn't mean that you will, right? (laughs) Just because you like something doesn't mean that I necessarily will as, as, as well. But um, kind of the goal here is to go over many of those different types of models, right? And just trying to show the differences between them. Um, lots of times whenever I think about this, I kind of think about it being called maybe like, you know, a conundrum, right? And whenever I think about it being called a conundrum is because a conundrum is something you don't either know, know enough about, right? Or is going to be an interesting problem. And yeah. um, so that, my thought is like for the last 10 years, we've learned a whole bunch about DSOs. I mean, quite frankly, whenever I started my company, um, I would not sell practices to DSOs because I had three different deals that ended up happening where they were terrible, <laughs> right? They were really, really bad for the seller and people were not happy with me. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to take a break from this. I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, but really over the course of time, but there's now 350 different groups across right. the country. Um, and uh, I've become more and more familiar with the term. Like if you've Heard of one DSO or know about one DSO? You kind of know about one DSO, right?
0: Exactly, absolutely.
1: That's about it. So, um, I don't. Would it help? Would it be helpful to provide maybe a little bit of context as far as like you know history of what is a DSO that type I, of stuff? Absolutely,
0: I, th- I think it would be. And 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 I'd like to I'd like to further elucidate here. Um, just when, as you're crystallizing these terms and you're you're telling people exactly what different forms this thing takes. That the DSO model has gone through several iterations. Some people say as many as seven, some people say as many as 10, where they have differentiated themselves and they've tried slightly different things to get the business model right so that it's good for both the practice owner slash doc and good for the company that's that's purchasing or partnering with that doctor. So there there's a lot there that's not covered with the term DSO or DPO.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe like to 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 go back a little ways, um, if you look at just uh, just DSOs in the U.S. I mean, this is not new, right? Like, and DSO is actually a subset of an MSO, medical service organization, right? And a uh, medical service organization has been around, you know, since the '60s. So I mean, that's how hospital systems started, right? Is going to be grouping together of practices, grouping together of doctors, um, and so.
0: The reason and, and what, a little and Kyle, long, why right? did they do that originally what what there, there, there had to be a benefit to that strategy so what yep. was that benefit they were after
1: a big portion of the benefit was going to be um administration right so essentially you have all these individual groups all these individual doctors mm-hmm. that are out there and they kind of are replicating each one of their services many times over right so whether that's going to be insurance verification whether it's going to be accounting services whether that's going right. to be um, uh, all of the background marketing. A big one also is going to be insurance reimbursement in that world, right? So insurance reimbursement is going to be the biggest one as they get together, they can negotiate the price of insurances mm-hmm. up for uh, the compensation, right? So um, that's the biggest reason for, on the hospital system. Um, but, so the reason that DSOs kind of took or was a laggard behind all this is because you have, call well, you know, 100,000 plus individual dentists out there whole bunch of different mom and pop shops out there, and all of them are kind of in the million dollar range, right? So they're not going to be uh, huge, huge, huge practices for the most part, right? And you're also not going to have like these tiny, tiny, tiny practices on the other side. It's just kind of hard to wrangle, (laughs) right? So uh, where if you look at, um, oh, I don't know, um, ophthalmology practices. Ophthalmology practices are typically going to be larger in size. You're gonna have more partners in each one of them. And so you don't have to have as many of them to come together in order to form an organization. So that's kind of the reason there was a little bit of a lag time there, but I mean, shoot, even the ones that we know of right now, I mean, there's very, very large groups out there. that have essentially been around since the eighties and nineties. Right. So if you look at mm-hmm. um, Heartland, if you look at smile brands, uh, in one way, shape or form,
0: Love um, it, you know, places, places like love it, uh, places like right. castle Monarch, some of the names. Yep. Um,
1: so, uh, all these, uh, many of the companies kind of started up in the nineties now, uh, What I get asked most of the time, whenever I'm going through like a prospectus review, something like that, with a visual doctor is going to be like, why do these things exist in the first place, right? And so really, if you think about it, it's just kind of a finance 101 question, which is going to be, uh, you can accept non-dentist investors into a DSO, where most states don't allow you to be a non-dentist investor into an actual dental practice, right? right? So the main reason is just to include those folks because if you didn't uh, or if you didn't need that, essentially what you could do is you could just do this by forming together a group, right? right. So if you think about and like uh, an organization, I have some arguments.
0: I have some arguments on that one too. That many okay. many group practices are actually DSOs, particularly when they are through are multiple location practices, and 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 frankly, a lot of this. You know, Kyle, it's it's always confused me. I came to dentistry very late in life, and it's always confused me why dentists had never figured out the cost-sharing model that MDS had, and that that's a big part of this whole shebang. You know,
1: very much. Yep, very much. Yep, and so that's really interesting. Okay, so essentially, whenever I think about groups, I think about like the AADGP, American Association of Dental Group Practices, right? And um, all of those are gonna be founded kind of more as just dentists coming together, maybe having you five, 10 practices out there. But all of it is going to be completely and totally doctor owned, no investor, right? And um, over the course of time, kind of one of the reasons to group together is going to be not just the cost sharing model, but also going to be the finance 101 model that if one plus one, does not always equal two, right? One plus one can equal 2.1 or 2.5, right? And so if you can do that multiple times over, then suddenly you have an organization that is much, much, much more valuable than a single practice Absolutely. by itself, right? So it essentially kind of becomes an M&A game, right? So mergers and acquisitions. Um, so uh, m- my thought is, is like, most of the DSOs that are out there, as funny as it is, really did start with a single practice that was doing well, right? A um, vast majority of them did. And so you have one practice that did well, maybe they went out and started up another one, maybe they went around and purchased another two, three, four, whatever. At some point or another, you hit what's called like a debt ceiling, right? And a debt ceiling is going to be that one person can only handle a certain amount of debt. So if you're a person who has a very, very successful practice, maybe you can handle up to $5 million worth of debt, personally, right? A bank says, okay, I can kind of understand how I'm gonna lend you this $5 million. Mm -hmm. We're not maybe super happy about it, but overall, maybe we'll get there, right? Um, so once you hit a debt ceiling then you kind of have a, which came first chicken or the egg conversations, like, okay, so do I keep on growing or do I wait until I pay down a whole bunch of that debt and then can keep growing? So to me, this is going to be a big reason that BSOs kind of came into being that investors came in and said, Hey, we can kind of solve this bank problem and we can solve this financing problem. Um, so I mean, what, you have a whole bunch of different groups in the 1990s. They end up coming on board, and by the 2000s, investors started putting together structures for them to thrive. Right, and whenever we say thrive, it's interesting. You said that you think that there's been seven or eight iterations of BSOS that have been out there. Um, I think we probably
0: there may be more.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. So um, I think we probably both agree. Like the first ones weren't very good. (laughs) Right. Like okay, from from a doctor perspective, obviously I'm not one, right? So from a doctor perspective, what makes it horrible in your eyes? Like, I think
0: I think what most people think of whenever they think about DSOs is someone coming in and purchasing a practice and becoming, you know, the the Empire in Star Wars, right? Right. Uh, You know, you've got some guy who walks in and goes and force chokes you and says you will lower your overhead. Or, you know, you've got someone who is uh, an auxiliary who is put in charge of making sure that doctors treatment plan profitably, um, and, and you can take that to mean what you take it to mean. But um, I, I, th- I think that the entire original model of the DSO is rampant grounds or very fertile grounds for, uh, for malpractice or, or for at least the seeming appearance of malpractice. Uh, or or abdication of the, of the doctor's decision-making.
1: Yep, completely. Well, and really, if you, if you think about it, it kind of comes down to like management style, right? So it's going to be, you know, top down management style rather than collaboration, right? And especially partnership, right? So there's, uh, we'll kind of get to that, but I mean, there's lots of partner ways of doing this as well. Right. So um, whenever you think about a top-down management style, it's going to be, so your entire culture comes directly from the top. Many times there is not much culture and everything is going to be profit, 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 right? So that kind of Mm -hmm. infects the doctors and the doctors are now going to be doing things that they wouldn't have done otherwise. It's one of the same reasons that I have a really hard time with the amount of um, student loan debt (laughs) that lots of doctors are carrying, right? Because I think it makes you make decisions that you wouldn't have normally made.
0: I agree completely. Right? Right. Uh, we would so, like to think it doesn't, but it, in, in reality, those are the financial realities that bleed over right. into the clinical side of dentistry. Well, and we're, we're people,
1: right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm a, like, I would, yeah. Okay. Maybe I'm saying they're wrong. right? I'm saying that they're wrong in the decision that they're making on the back end. but I don't, I, I, I'm not trying to judge them for it. It's just we're people and they're incentives, right? And so if your incentive is, Oh my gosh, I need to pay down, you know, $500,000 worth of debt here. Um, suddenly those three surface fillings might turn into crowns, you know, and those types of things. So um, anyway, so I, and so if you think about it from an incentive standpoint, the DSOs are so the top of management structure. They're going to see that type of incentive structure and they're going to say, Hey, well, do you know what? We're going to push all these things, which I think is one of the big reasons that they got a bad name. All of these other dentists out there are saying, well, you're not doing the right things for the patient. I see you putting this treatment plan together and I see five treatment plans coming in a month from a certain DSO that is out there. And I don't agree with this.
0: Right. Absolutely. Which and, and, and before we get too far into that, I want people to understand that there are lots of different ways to do dentistry and um, many of them are right. Uh, and you can have a person who goes into one dentist and they, they, they had exposés on this, which I thought were kind of hilarious because dentistry is both an art and a science and so you can have a person who goes into one office and the doctor there's very, very conservative and says, you know what? I think we only need to do a filling on this too. They can go into another place and they get orthodontics consult and they get, you know, a filling here. And Hey, by the way, we should probably crown this and do some, uh, or do some crown lengthening over here. Oh, by the way, you need SRPs because you really have these deep probing depths and that older doctor didn't take the records he's legally supposed right. to. And there's, there's yep. a lot of different ways. I think that a lot of times though, um, we only see the world through our own lens, and so all those treatment plans that come in, someone comes in with a ten thousand dollar treatment plan that we treatment plan one filling on, we think that doctor's a crook. It may sometimes just be that that doctor knows more than you do, and that's something right. that a, as a doctor should really take a deep look at yourself about.
1: Man, that's such a good point. Yeah, because there's so many different types of profiles out there of practices. And I can't tell you the amount of times we'll go through and do a prospectus on a older doctor's practice. Mm-hmm. And there's um, a couple of kind of uh, terms out there um, from the entrepreneurship world, like founder syndrome, right? right? And one of the things about founder syndrome mm-hmm. is that you become more friends with your patients than you right. do as a clinician to your patients. And so suddenly there, are, there is a ton of work that is most likely going to need to be done. Now what's and it makes older the new doctor? doctor
0: who comes in look bad because the old guy wasn't doing right. what he should have been doing to begin with.
1: Yep, completely. So, I mean, this is a spectrum, right? This isn't going absolutely. to be like a black and white. This is going to be- absolutely, strange. And there and are definitely guys
0: right? on the other side. Trust me. Right. But you're, you're yes. going to get a different treatment plan going to an old bread and butter dentist who's never done any CE ever in their life. And there's those guys out there, folks. They lie about CE and they go to a golf hermit instead. And- they haven't ever done anything, ever learned anything since they got out of school. And you and I both know that when we get out of school, we barely know how not to kill someone. So these old dudes, they're really ignorant. And I can say that. You
1: probably well can. shoot. I, if I, I was yeah, that's true, right? So um, and I'll tell you what, if uh, CE happens to be on the golf course, then I got a lot in this weekend. So right, that's, sure that's,
0: no that's good. <laughs> all you have to do is have your assistant take down the code. You're all you all good, man. Right, that yep. kind of thing is—it's one of my pet peeves. So I'm sorry I went off on that, but it, No, it I couldn't agree,
1: couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, hopefully you know whenever I'm saying that, I'm just using that as—I'm just using that as an example, right? That, that could happen from an incentive standpoint. And
0: right? and the whole point is there are both sides of the spectrum, and the thing is that most of us fall somewhere in between, and most of us are okay. doing things right in our eyes and for our patients.
1: Yep, yep, absolutely, yep. Um, well, so maybe uh so if we kind of go back again to the 2000s essentially like one of the big things that um uh started to happen is dental boards started to say like well shoot you guys can't do this right right and um over the course of time you know really over the last 20 years um, more and more and more dental boards have essentially kind of succumbed to the larger groups which have said hey do you know what we actually we can do this and there's ways around these laws in each one of the states for a dentist to not just be the sole owner of a practice right some of them are still stringent right so there's still states out there that are very very stringent in this way but there's also a lot more that have become a lot more lenient over the last 20 years as well
0: a lot of this also developed into the advertising laws as well because they kind of went hand in hand
1: can you tell can you what do you mean by that
0: well um originally here in texas we were not allowed to advertise and um, it was about the time that monarch came out if i'm not mistaken and Monarch right. and Castle pushed for the board. They pushed against this non-advertising thing and, and they won. And the interesting thing to me has always been that that actually gave the independent dentist the edge that they needed to survive in this new age of, of DSOs. Um, it, it's kind of, I, I suppose, un, unforeseen consequences on their part, but they ended up doing some real good for independent dentists, I, I believe.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I love that. Yeah. I, I'm sure you're right. Like, especially, so I was down in Texas from what, 2001 to 2006? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. No, until 2007. And um, I kind of saw the exact same changes as well, right? Over the course of time, it's just kind of started to modernize. And I'll tell you what, there's some other interesting rules down in Texas, especially, <laughs> especially with the people who had been um, uh, uh, grandfathered in to you know, mm-hmm. not wearing gloves and masks and all that kind of stuff. There was some crazy stuff that I still saw at that point. So um, anyway, so, uh, maybe, so maybe like to define what a DSO is, is going to be a business organization's sole purpose of it is going to be allowing a non-dentist investment into dental practice ownership, right? Okay. Um, you mentioned, so like DPO, DSO, DSP, there's all these different acronyms that are out there.
0: ESPN,
1: you know. Yeah, ESPN. right. I like that one too. They're not much on these days, but um,
0: <laughs> yeah. How would you know? You're on the golf on the golf course all
1: weekend, <laughs> right? Seriously. Uh, okay, so um, you may you may. Okay, so here's the thing. We may disagree whenever I say this, but whenever I think right. about whenever I think about this, I think that really what this is is going to be marketing, right? So if you want to call it a dental service organization, if you want to call it a dental service partnership, if you want to call it a dental partnership organization, if you want to call it, there's a myriad of different things that you can call these out there. And essentially most DSOs that I talk to kind of have their own name to it or their own culture behind what it is that they're doing, et cetera. Well, everybody wants to get um, away
0: from the stink of what the original DSOs were. They're all right, to okay. Yes. Right,
1: okay so, so maybe, Hey, maybe we're going to be on the same page because really that's what I think. Right. So you have all these bad feelings out there mm-hmm. of what a DSO was. I remember I, I I ask lots and lots and lots of clients like, "Hey, uh, a DSO is that a four-letter word to you?" Right, and um, many of them will say yes. Right, and so um, I do think that that is going to be just kind of getting away from a certain stigma that is out there more or less, and to show that hey, we are not going to be the same way that you knew about you know 15, 20 years ago. Would mm-hmm. you agree with that, or do you not? Or do you think oh, there actually I, is? I would. I would
0: completely agree. The only thing I disagree with you on. Um, is that I believe that a DSO is not just a vehicle for people to bring outside non-dentist money into a, a dental practice setting, but it's also a, um, an outsourcing of administrative um, duties. Yeah. Well, okay. Can I, so can I pay, can I pay devil's advocate? Okay. Yeah,
1: so like if I will play, oh, so play, play devil's advocate a minute. About. So, <laughs> okay. Let's say, let's say we could just have a private equity group go into a group, right? So let's say it's a, uh, there is a five location practice that is owned by three partners in California, right? right. And um, they have, you know, $5 million in revenue, a private equity calls them up and says, Hey, you know what, we think that you have a really good business model. We'd like to start investing into you directly. If they were able to, they actually wouldn't even need to set up the DSO right? Because you could actually handle all of those kind of uh, duties if within the practice itself, right? Right. So um, each practice that came on board, they would just kind of have the entire organization built out such that you don't necessarily need this extra entity that is out there, which is going to be the DSO, right? So I'm 100% with you from a grouping standpoint, like economies of scale, yes, Right. right? Oh, absolutely. You definitely need definitely need it. So um, whether you're pushing uh, total uh, cost variable costs down, whether it's uh, allowing additional uh, benefits for your employees, mm-hmm. uh, there, uh, whether it's uh, negotiating with insurance to get higher reimbursement rates. I mean, all of these things right. are really, really, really great that can be done. But my thought is, is like the only reason you have the DSO is just for private equity or just so a non-dentist investor can play a
0: part. I can, I can, I can definitely see that. And it, that actually plays into kind of my informal definition of different types of DSOs because it's based upon the speed at which the investor wishes to get their money back. There are some DSOs that seem to buy practices that are not doing well or at least really not performing like they should with the sole intent of being able to put in controls and systems to increase production in a very easy way, a kind of low hanging fruit kind of thing. And then there are others, and this is what MB2 tends to do. They buy practices that are performing exceedingly well and that's all they buy. And their thought process, you guys already did the hard work. We're going to reduce your overhead by by systematizing the administrative portion of things And by using, using this economies of scale on administrative side, not as much as on the, Hey, you need to buy exactly this from this formulary because we get it for 50 cents cheaper here. They do some of that and they do have that bargaining power, but their main drive seems to be, how can we make the, what I like to say is I actually, I actually sold my headaches to someone else. I kept my practice. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? I like
1: that. That's good. That's good.
0: But it seems like there's really kind of those two very distinct, stark um, realities whenever it comes to someone buying into your practice who's a non-dentist. Um, and, and it seems that that also drives the managerial style that's necessary to get to their end goal. Yep. To me. Yeah, and, and, and I, mean, I guess I, what I would say, go ahead. I said, and I could, I could be completely wrong and correct me if-, if no, I'm wrong. no, no, I no. I mean, I think you're right.
1: I guess- I, whenever I think about it, it's so like if we put it on that same continuum, right, which is going to be different shades of gray. What if we switch that continuum to, you know, uh, are DSOs good or bad? And the answer on one side is yes. And on the answer is one side is no. And then they're, right. they're all in the middle, right? It's <laughs> so like, well, and it's a sliding scale.
0: It's a sliding scale that the middle depends upon who the dentist is.
1: Completely. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, with 350 different DSOs and 350 different business plans, um, right one that you might never consider might be a perfect fit for somebody in Massachusetts, absolutely. you know? So well, I've,
0: I've recently made a, a really good friend, um, Dr. Briggs Smith and he work. he runs a comfort dental and their, their, their business model is so starkly different from my own that yep. I couldn't, I wouldn't enjoy working that way, uh, but he loves it and he thrives right. under those conditions. So I think you're absolutely right. There is a, there is a, put it this way. There is a DSO model that fits almost everybody except for the people who will never fit a DSO model. Is that accurate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's one for everybody unless there's not. <laughs> that's, it, that's it. I thought you'd like that. So, so go yeah, ahead. That get, good. Get, get um, out. And I'm sorry, I've kind of pulled you off base there, but I thought those were no, some more good. Points to make. Yeah, completely. No, I, I would much rather you pull oh. me,
1: pull me those directions. Um, so the reason I think that there's this kind of, uh, the top-down management style ends up kind of occurring is going to be, because if you think about like how hard it is to create culture in a single office, multiply it by 100,
0: right? Imagine.
1: Right, exactly, I mean, that's a really, really, really challenging thing to do, and so suddenly, as you grow, it becomes exponentially harder to keep that culture that you had started out with as, as, as you continue growing on. I mean, look, you look at like a, a group like Heartland, right? Um, I think that, obviously, there's gonna be varying uh, degrees of what you would say about a group like that, right? So some of them would be like raving about how good it is. And some people would have not as fond things to say about them, right? right. But it's because they have a thousand locations, <laughs> right? Exactly. A thousand locations is super hard to wrangle. And you think about the management structures that have to be in place for all those different, uh, for all those different individuals. It's, I mean, it's staggering, really, the, the size of an organization like that. And so I do think it becomes harder over the course of time. Um, but whenever somebody asks me like, is a DSO good or bad? I guess my retort is going to be, well, I think there's good and bad dentists, right? And right. I think that just just like there's good and bad dentists, there's good and bad people, there's good and bad D- DSOs. And then kind of along that scale, just like you talked about with um, Comfort Dental or something like that, yeah, I don't know if that's something that you might pry then, but shoot, there's a guy that I know very well in the North and Colorado Springs who loves it. You know, that's his jam. So, um, and who am I to say he's wrong, <laughs> right? right.
0: Exactly. And, um, and, and it's kind of the point I was trying to make earlier is that even our treatment philosophies as dentists are not aligned. Right. Um, the only thing that we can assume is aligned is that we all care about our patients and we should assume that. Yep. And, and yep. much the same way, the only thing that aligns with all of these different DSO models is the assumption that they care about making a profit. Is that fair?
1: Well yeah well, they do because almost all of them are going to be backed in some way shape or form, right and right. so if you have investors backing, then essentially they need to be returning a profit to uh to their investors as well right so um it, would it be helpful to talk about like how how private equity works at all, or is that
0: going to be too inside Yeah, i baseball? think that's I think that that is uh that that's really kind of pulling back that curtain uh so that people can uh can, can really see what's going on maybe even i it would be more appropriate to saying opening up the fifth wall because in a very ah. real way, because we're dentists, we're trapped within this dental world and we don't know that there's a dental world. Go, there, there's another world going on beyond that comic book page. Right. Right. So yeah. Break, shatter okay. the fifth wall for us, if you will. <laughs> Here goes. Ready?
1: Uh, okay. So, uh, for, for the longest time, it was going to be a, an individual dentist buying from another individual dentist. There's a bank involved. That bank has actually kept valuations of practices artificially low, right? Mm-hmm. So the reason being is because of that debt ceiling that we're talking about. So essentially, the most that a dental pack or a dental lender is going to be lending is going to be something like 85% of total practice collections during a 12-month period, right? Okay. It's pretty much the most. Every once in a while, there's a few exceptions, but that's going to be primarily the most you can get. Okay, so um, back in 2008, 2009, like everything dried up, right? And so I was doing transitions at that point, everything dried up. The reason everything dried up was because the banking system essentially ceased, right? So banking system hasn't seized this time around. There's been a lot of kind of uh, good things that have been put into the banking system to help. Okay, I know that we've, uh, we've, we've talked about this, about recession, depression, all those kind of things, but it hasn't happened yet regardless, right?
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm hands off on that. I'll, I'll okay. bring you way down, way down the rabbit hole on that. Okay, right on. Um, but the other thing that's kind
1: of allowed uh, valuations to stay decently similar is going to be the fact that uh, many private equity groups have essentially what's called a lock box, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're a private equity group, what's, what you're gonna do, let's say uh, you're, you're the manager of that private equity fund. What you're gonna do is you're gonna spend a couple of years going around to high net worth investors and to um, organizations and saying, hey, look, you should entrust some of your money to me for a defined period of time, right? typically a private equity group is going to keep that money for something like seven years, right? So they're gonna spend two years going around and raising that money. Let's say they're raising a hundred million dollar fund. Um, they're gonna spend two years going around raising it. They're gonna close on that, on that round of financing. And uh, from there, they now are going to be going out and executing their business plan for spending $100 million, let's say, in dental practices,
0: right? Okay. So, so before, we spend, before you go any further, right. I, want, I want to call people's attention to something. Something you said there just kind of rolled out, and it's super, super important. The number of years that the investors are waiting on the return of their investment will, will, will affect your multiple on your EBITDA. True. Something you should know about, guys. So go, okay. go ahead and drive on. Do you on want me to go down think, that do you mean to go down that road for a minute? I do, I do, absolutely. Because mo- okay. most people I think have a hard time wrapping their heads around what's EBITDA, why do they use that instead of a percentage of productions or collections?
1: Okay. Um, okay, so uh what is uh, what is EBITDA? So EBITDA is going to be earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. It's essentially an accounting term. So it's an acronym, it's an accounting term. And uh what you're really looking for there is going to be how does your practice perform as an investment, right? So uh, if you pay all of your practice level expenses, you know, so uh, your uh, dental supplies, your laboratory bills, your payroll, your rent, etc., um, mm-hmm. along with a fair doctor's salary, and that's right. where it becomes more art than science, and I'll get to that in just a second, but whatever a fair doctor's salary is going to be, what is left over at the end of the day?
0: Is that doctor's right. salary plus CEO salary to throw a monkey <laughs> it wrench for you?
1: Well, so it can be. Yeah, absolutely. So let's say that you are going to be a producer within uh, your practice. And then you're also going to be a, um, uh, you also have four different practices that you're going around and making sure they operate correctly. You essentially could kind of take down a regional manager type of salary or a CEO type of salary in addition to your practice, uh, uh, your practice production, right? Right. Um, so, in answer to your question, yes, definitely. Sometimes we do price that in, depending on the size of the organization, all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you would mentioned how far away they are from a recapitalization event, and again, we haven't even gotten what that is yet, but um, let's say that the fund has been around for a total of four years, and then in another year, they're planning on selling it to another group, right? Um, at that point they may be trying to fill their coffers, right? And so if they're trying to fill their coffers with practices um, and to make sure that they do the right thing for their investors and most of their investor money, they very well may offer you something more. Now, here's the flip side. The flip side is going to be what if they've had a really, really, really big run over the first three or four years on their practices, right? And they don't have quite as much money on the back end. They can actually go the opposite way, (laughs) right? And so that's, um, that's one of the big reasons that I'm a big fan of making sure you see what all of your options are, right? Because if right. you see what all of your options are, then suddenly you're gonna make the right decision for you at that time, right? And um, it very well may be that a group comes in, and I'm not gonna call any of them out, but they may come in and offer somebody a multiple of four times, right? Mm-hmm. And then a year later, offer them a multiple of five times, right, right. and that, that, that can happen and it can just be a timing thing, right? Exactly. So because they only have that money for a certain amount of time, there's two big things to take away from that. So thing one is going to be, uh, they don't have to worry about, um, about investors pulling their money. The investors have pledged that money to them for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. Investors can't just call them and say, Hey, by the way, I want my million or $10 million back. It's not the way it works. right? Right. Um, on the flip side, They also have a defined period of time that they're gonna get that. Let's say that that uh, investor says, I need you to guarantee me a 15% return per year over the five years that you have the money, right? Um, That private equity manager is actually taking a pretty big risk, right? And that risk is going to be, what if I don't hit that? Because if they don't hit that, guess what? That private equity manager makes very, very, very little money. It's maybe even negative money, right? Um, because they're guaranteeing a return that it may not hit. Now, on the flip side, uh, you hear about like all those hedge funds, they get all those bonuses based on performance, all that kind of stuff. If they do really well, then they get big bonuses as well. right? So I mean, it, goes, it, goes, it goes both ways. But essentially, let's say you raise that $100 million fund and you go around and you buy a total of 85 practices, um, about a year's left in the fund, and you know that you're kind of starting to run out of money, investor money, Um, There's a couple ways of handling that. Way one is going to be to have recapitalization event, right? So I'm sure there's people out there that have heard about, you know, taking a certain percentage of your practice, uh, selling it for X amount. And then on the flip side, whenever the recapitalization event happens, you can sell an an additional amount of your practice for Y, right? Or it's actually going to be X times something, right? So X times two, X times three, something like that. That's the way they do it because essentially there's going to be transactable equity and we'll get down to that whenever we talk about joint ventures and equity roles and all those kind of things. But essentially that's the way the private equity works, right? Is going to be, there's a lockbox, right? And they may lever it up with debt, but essentially there's a certain amount of investor funds that can go out there. Now keep in mind, again, just like the different, if we talk about the continuum of good and bad, there's a continuum of structures, of, of financing structures that you can use too. And so this is a little bit of a simplistic view, but essentially this is kind of the backbone of how it works. Does that make sense or did I do an okay job? No, of that, explaining makes,
0: it? that makes absolutely perfect sense to me. I, I worry, but I've been through this, and so I wonder if we're going to lose anybody with it, but it is what it is, <laughs> you know? <laughs> okay.
1: I was kind of wondering about that. Um, okay, well, so um, maybe we can talk about, so rather than getting to the nitty gritty of kind of the how behind private equity works, What if instead we flipped it to, okay, what would a typical option scenario look like if you were looking to, you know, take chips off of the table or something like that? Is that a possibility? I'll
0: I'll tell you in my practice right now, if this helps at all. When I sold my practice, I sold 70% of it. Um, I have another friend who sold less of his practice. Uh, But in general, the DPO that I'm with buys between 60 and 70%. And they always want the owner, so long as the owner is interested in being involved, to own a portion of it because that gives you some skin in the game. Um, Then you are hired as a dentist at the practice. You make a percentage of your production just like a normal associate would. It's generally a nice, generous amount. Um, And um, after that, you've still got dividends that will come in, depending upon the operating cost of your practice, which behooves you to keep it low you'll get some nice dividends in each quarter or each year or biannually. However, the particular business does it. And that's kind of the basic structure of things on your first 60 or 70%. You're offered a multiple anywhere between three. And I've heard as high as nine in some practices, but I haven't seen that myself. Um, (laughs) well, I I think I know which business you were dealing with too. Was was it uh, DW? Uh,
1: that was not, but I do know, yeah, I know which one you're talking about. Right. So, and their yes.
0: multiples tend to be high from what I understand, which is very nice. Um, yep. But uh, then on your, your remaining, you know, 30 to 40%, um, that may be sectioned or it may be taken as a whole. And right. you may have a period of time that says, hey, you must hit these milestones of production or increase in your revenue of this practice, which means you can either lower your, lower your cost or increase your production. Yep. And you must stay on for X amount of years. And it must hit these numbers consistently as an average over those years. And if at the end of that time, we will buy the remaining portion for this much, much higher multiple than we initially offered. So that basically we're baking in your success. And we're giving you an offer based upon your best efforts that we believe that you can do. And that's how the sale works, which I think is a very you know, equitable sale for everyone all around.
1: Completely. Yeah, especially whenever you consider the options that used to be around, right? So the option used to be bring in an associate, right? And eventually right. sell part of your practice or all of your practice to that person. My favorite stat in all of dentistry, I don't know if you've ever heard this one. Do you know the success rate of associateships? You ever heard that?
0: Um, I'm, I'm going to say the success rate based upon, um, a six month average is probably less than 50% on a five-year average. I would guess it's 20% based on just oh, no, you,
1: you nailed it. Yeah, yeah. So you nailed it. So it's going to be one out of five. So it's 20% is going to end up kind of panning out the way that you want it to, which is horrible. <laughs> I used to do oh, associateship no. placements and I used to get, you know, calls from either the um associate or from the employer saying hey what the heck you put me with this jerk It's just like yeah well they also just don't work out very often you know and so we hey, um,
0: said the same thing <laughs> <laughs>
1: um okay so then your other option is going to be okay maybe you just kind of forego the associate and you either bring in a partner or you just sell your practice right so right. Um, both of those can be so the selling the practice is a very low risk right so you right. once you sell the practice you're pretty much walking because there's probably only room for it for a single doctor in there if you bring in a partner you're talking about like a 60 percent success rate so that's a little bit better than associates but still it's a little bit of a pot shot so essentially with the advent of bso's coming in it just kind of gives you another option right and so that option can be as easy as kind of the old way of doing it which is somebody coming in and buying 100 of your business right and you're just kind of staying on as an associate there's lots and lots of groups that do that by the way and there's really again nothing wrong with the older way of doing that Right? So if that's something that you want and you want to take more chips off the table, then that's fine. right? And you, you're talking about like outsourcing all of your headaches. That's literally outsourcing all of your headaches. right? You're going to be an associate and that's going to be completely fine. Some people do consider that a little bit like reverse mortgage-y. Does that make sense whenever I say it like that?
0: Oh, no, absolutely. I was actually going to use a, a racetrack analogy and say that whenever you hire an associate, you're betting on an unknown quality, a, a horse that someone just told you runs well. Whenever you sell to DSO, that remaining portion, you're actually betting on a horse, you know how it runs, it's you.
1: That's really good. I like that. Yep. Oh man, that's really good. I wish I would come up with that. Jeez, that's really great. Okay. (laughs) Um, Consider that stolen by the way. Um, So (laughs) absolutely. uh, Okay. So uh, as people got more competitive over the course of time, right? So they keep on buying 100% of the practice, but they would allow you to roll investment into a holding company, right? Right. And that is the company that now holds. That is
0: my favorite part of being a member of MB2. Yep. I'm betting on the success of all of my partners. And that ameliorates so much risk. It's just, yep. it's, I, I felt whenever I saw the, 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 the package that they offer, I just felt like it was such a generous package. And, yep. you know, I, guys, you know me, I don't come out beating, beating their drum, but I really like this style of practice. It, it, it yep. resonates with me.
1: So, uh, but really there's, I mean, 300 of the 350 now offer programs like this, right? Where it's going to be r- wrapping into a holding Well, those 50 that, right? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> no joke, I don't work with those. Um, so yeah, if you fall too far down the continuum towards RDSO is good and you're on the bad side, it's just like, ah, I'm just not going to mess with you, you know? So, um, but... Uh, essentially kind of what you're doing there is you're taking your single stock, right? So if you look at your practice as an investment, you're taking your single stock in your practice and you're switching it over to a mutual fund of dentistry, right? Which is kind of an interesting way of doing it. And it's also can be extremely lucrative. If you look at the people who um, kind of got in on the start of Heartland, right? Or the start of Elite or the start of a many, many, many other groups, um, they've done exceedingly well, (laughs) right? Wrapping their equity into that type of environment um so there's still groups out there that are doing that right and so some of them are kind of more startup groups where you can get in on the ground floor and essentially kind of multiply those returns by significant amounts right and then we kind of get into the joint venture model right so the joint venture model is going to be something mb2 has made very attractive in the demo world again this is not a new concept right and so um uh, i i like those guys over there but it's not it's not new it's new in dentistry right and um essentially what you do is you sell a certain percentage of your practice right and then allow uh, they allow you to come along you get net income distributions as you go and then you also can have a transactable equity portion on the back end right mm-hmm. now that transactable equity portion is super interesting right because what it allows you to do is it allows you to transact your personal portion of your practice with a uh with the private equity group that is going to be coming along, right? So let's say that you did keep a 60% stake within the business. You might be able to sell half of that stake, right? Right. At a very high multiple, right? So instead of selling it at four or five, you might sell it at 12, right? That out, that's pretty attractive, right? Now
0: here's the thing. I can't, I can't, confirm or deny anything from mine because I am under an NDA because I did sell just so that anyone knows that's why I'm not piping in.
1: Something like, right?
0: (laughs) So um, I've heard heard that they can be as high as like 15
1: to 16%. True. Yep. That is true. Um, And so there's all sorts of different types of joint, joint venture models that are out there. The interesting thing about joint venture is you still kind of own your single stock right? Now your single stock has an option contract, (laughs) right? With going out and kind of going along with that group. However, it's not the same thing as owning everybody, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, there's pluses and minuses to each, right? So I'm not saying either is right or or neither is wrong. I would say that from a a safety standpoint, a JV model is actually a really safe thing to do because you already know what your practice does, right? And so you still continue to own it and you have control over what your practice is doing, uh, and then you're kind of supported on the back end. Right. Um, the interesting thing about an equity role, um, which again, other groups do, uh, is going to be that uh, it might be a much larger payout, right? Because that mutual fund, if other practices are performing extremely well, then suddenly that percent or 2% stake within the DSO that you originally get, that can right. be a very, very lucrative thing, right? It can be. Now, here's the thing. Will it be? Maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe that, not,
0: right? And that particular thing occurs when you do have a, a, a recap. Is that correct? Right.
1: Yep, right. exactly. So yeah, once you recap, that's kind of when all the initial investor is more or less um, divesting their position within the business and a new investor is coming in. So let's say that $100 million runs out, you now need to find somebody with a $500 million fund, right? right? So, like if you look at a group like Heartland, but there are four private equity events in, something like that at this point. And they now are with one of the largest, uh, one of the largest private equity investment groups in the entire world, KKR, hmm. right? And so, and the investment into them is dramatic. I didn't, the know Kella,
0: I didn't know Run Root had invested in. Them. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, KKR. They 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 bought out oh, the entire. I thought
0: you said KBR.
1: Oh yeah, KKR. I yeah, was going to
0: say that. That's some disver- diversification right there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, KKR. Uh, yeah, they're they're a big one. Um, so. Uh, so here's the thing, I guess, um, you worked with, uh, the group that you ended up filling with directly, right? right? And I would say that there are some docs out there, um, that can do that. I would also say that there are many people who are leaving a lot on the table (laughs) by doing that, by not getting yourself into a very competitive environment, Right. Now here's the thing is that this is not going to be a show on, hey, you should use us as your broker, all that kind of stuff. At the same time, I do think it's a good idea to have somebody who understands that entire environment kind of pine for you, right? So Mm -hmm. it's the exact same thing as like, somebody comes and offers you you know a chocolate ice cream cone and you're like, sweet, I've got a chocolate ice cream cone. This is pretty great, but that's a whole bunch different than than taking you to Baskin Robbins and seeing all of the different options that are out there. Because very, very rarely do we see the most valuable offer being taken, right? Very rarely. And very often, whenever I go through and I try to figure out, okay, who do I think this doctor is going to pick? I can't tell you how often I'm wrong. I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I'm wrong way more than I'm right. Because here's the thing, I'm not going to be living it. They're going to be living it, right? right? They're going to be the ones who are going to be in it for however long.
0: I think it's very authentic um, that you, that you, you, you say that because, you know, a lot of guys would be like, yeah, I, you know, I always set them up with the right people. Um, You're, you're making a great point there that even whenever you have a great deal of information about a doctor and you've met the doctor, there are still maybe things in the background that the doctor's thinking about or things he hasn't thought about that will change the direction he may go because they have all these choices. And so that's, that's a, a really good point.
1: Well, and so what's really interesting to me are going to be the ones that come to us. Um, I'll give you an example of a pediatric practice in Georgia, um, pretty large pediatric practice. And they came to us thinking they wanted to affiliate with the DSO. Um, We brought them, I don't know, five, six offers, something like that. Very lucrative deals. And um, whenever he kind of went went through the process, what he ended up deciding is like, you know what? This isn't what I want. Really what I want is going to be to have somebody that I can mentor, right? And I really want to have a partner in this. Right. We ended up finding a doctor from Walla Walla, Washington. He ended up buying 50% of the practice. It's the old way of doing it, right? But here's the thing he made his decision with all of the different things on the table, right? And did he walk away from some of the equity? Yeah, he got 100% dead because he could have sold it for a lot more than he would have otherwise. And and I think
0: almost in every situation, whenever you're selling to a private individual, you will be walking away from a lot of money on the table.
1: Without a doubt, yep. So, and whenever we say a lot of money, I mean,
0: we're talking about
1: double, yeah. Double what you could have gotten otherwise is really kind of the way that I end up looking at it. Now there's a big uh, skew in that and it can be a lot more than that. It also can be some amount less than that. But I mean, it, it's, it's dramatic, the difference. Um, and what's really interesting is we're kind of in this like little niche of time that uh, 15, uh, call it 20 years ago, people did not have these options. There was no such thing as this option in dentistry. And 20 years from now, there's also not going to be this option in the industry, right? So we're gonna be consolidating, we're consolidating it really so fast. I, that
0: brings me to some of my questions. So um, okay. let's, let's have, have, have we covered the, this it's relatively fertile ground about the different ways that DSOs operate. Um, sure. Have we covered as much of that as you want to?
1: Let's do it, yeah, let's go somewhere else.
0: Okay, I, I believe that the future of the landscape here has changed greatly and it was changing already before COVID, but much like many, many things like hyperinflation that's about to happen. Um, it's, uh, it's just been accelerated by, by shutting down the U S economy. So my belief is that, and, and please, I'd love to, to discuss this and debate this with you. If, if you think I'm smoking crack, tell me it's, it's all good. But, um, what I see in this landscape is that there are going to be a glut of practices that want to sell. Um, I think brokers are going to have their pick, uh, DSOs are going to have their pick of which people that they represent, which people they purchase from. They're very quickly going to tie up their equity, um, their equity position. And then they're going to look going forward at actually redoing something they did in the past very poorly, which is the de novo practice. I think that there's going to be a lot of um, shared risk going on where they bring on new doctors and say, I want you to be part of our brand. We're going to help you to buy a practice. We'll do all the management or we will help you to build a practice, find a location. I think there's going to be a lot less um, equity grabs in older practices because they're going to become very, very much devalued, particularly older PPO practices that just don't have the flexibility to go out of network or to renegotiate everything on the table and that's kind of my thoughts um
1: okay so we probably might dis. so we probably might disagree a little bit more than we agree here but okay. i don't think you're wrong okay so here's here's where i'm here's where i'm going um to this point I mean, what well, we have, uh, 84, uh, just let's look it up from a micro standpoint, right? Okay. So from a micro standpoint, we have 84 practices there, are for sale across the country. 23 of them are under contract out of those 23, there hasn't been a single one that has fallen out of contract and not a single one has changed the valuation multiples, right? Okay. Not a single one. Right. Um, so here's the thing. Is it possible that that can happen? Yeah. It 100% is. And I mean, like. I think the uh, not considering that as a possibility would be a, an error, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I also kind of think of still this time seems to be an opportunity discussion at this point. Um, I think it's possible that we kind of change that to risk mitigation over mm-hmm. over a long run, um, and that and I've actually been it's been very weird in in my entire career. So since call it you know two thousand and seven is whenever I really started selling practices, right. Um, I've not run into a buyer's market, not once. Right. And so even in 2008, 2009, it wasn't a buyer's market, just everything seized. Right. And everybody went into complete and total risk mitigation mode. And actually most sellers were the ones that drew back and said, Oh, uh, look at what happened to my 401k, look at what happened to my IRA. I need to keep on working. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of created a, uh, an, an issue moving forward. But it's an issue that it really has been solving itself with VSOs coming in and purchasing at a much higher rate, right? Right. Um, so, is it possible for that to occur? Yes. I just haven't seen the data from it yet, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, if I'm well, if I'm looking every, at uh, everything
0: is either being baked in or baked out at this point, we're not going to see the true repercussions right. for at least a year financially.
1: Yep. I, I, th- I think you're definitely right on that too. So. Um, I do think that it's a good idea to use this time as an opportunity to consider what your what your options are. But um
0: Well I'm, overall, I'm glad that your out I'm glad that your outlook is, is rosier than mine. That that gives me a lot of heart because you've been doing this a lot longer than I've been thinking about it. So
1: Well, yeah, maybe, but I mean like here's the thing, is I could be wrong, you know. So I mean like and if and if I'm wrong and you're right, then suddenly Uh, you really should be looking (laughs) right now from a risk mitigation standpoint, right? Right, I can't tell you how many people have come to me over the last month and a half that we sold their practices to a DSO or partnered them with a DSO, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're all, every single one of them without fail is like, oh man, I'm so glad we did that, right? Right. (laughs) So, uh, because of course, right? You have a huge group behind you that is kind of helping you acquire PPE, right? And helping you uh, making sure that everybody is paid. You don't have to go through most of the time, the PPP and EIDL programs, right? All those kind of things. So, or least you have really good resources on the back end. So, look, I guess. Uh, man, I hope you're wrong, and I hope I'm right, <laughs> right?
0: I've got you thinking now, don't but, I? Uh, I? I didn't,
1: I didn't mean uh, to. I didn't mean but it to is.
0: to have a restless night uh, for the next couple of weeks here.
1: Well, oh no! So here's the thing: is like well, something that was something that was kind of interesting to me. So I was on. There have been tons and tons and tons of valuation. Uh, webinars that have been happening, just kind of talking about, okay, so what is going to happen with valuations going forward, et cetera, not just in the dental world, right, but also business brokers uh, that sell car washes, right, and sell all sorts of different stuff, like, okay, what's happening here, and um, pretty much everybody has the same idea to this point, just like, okay, well, unless you're taking out an SBA 7A loan, which, by the way, they're running out of money, and they will not have enough money for the end of the year, so but what's really interesting is dentistry doesn't have that problem because most deals aren't done on SBA 7As, right? So right. almost all of them are going to be conventional financing or going to be kind of mezzanine financing, stuff like that. Um, but I would say that the outlook of the buyers is actually decently bullish right now too, right? Mm-hmm. And so there is an opportunity if you do think it's going that way to take advantage of people who do think it's bullish, right? Um, I guess I'm probably one of those people as well that would consider it bullish, but my thought is, is that even if it is bullish, then uh, and we do prove to be right, then suddenly you're in the right place anyway, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's an interesting thought about kind of equity drying up as well. Um, I do think that there's probably going to be fewer dental or DSOs that are going to be starting at this point, and I think that has been driving a fair amount of the competition. So I do think you're right. I think the equity side probably is, as an eventuality, going to dry up, but right. it hasn't happened yet, right? So there's still a lot that is being offered.
0: Even, there. Even, and and, and we should probably define the terms "baking in" and "baking out." But even if you're if if you're looking at things from that standpoint, eventually, you know, four quarters from now, we're going to have a truer picture of where we are. And I think that if things don't turn around 180 degrees, equity is going to dry up because if. Yep. If it, if we're no longer making the kind of money we were making, if we're no longer as profitable as we were, particularly as we look at expanded appointment times and expanded costs per procedure and things like that, then it's going to go to greener pastures. I mean, that's the whole point of private.
1: Right. Yep, completely. So yeah, whenever I think about baking it in and baking it out, most of the time um, that's going to be so that's valuation methodology, right? And so you're either baking, uh, normally this is in, uh, regards to a, uh, we're not talking natural, about,
0: we're not talking like about natural
1: muff- catastrophe. <laughs> oh, sorry, like, what?
0: I just want to make a baking joke. We're not talking about okay. muffins people.
1: <laughs> muffins. Yeah. So muffins and cookies. Right. Uh, so, uh, the, normally this is going to be in regards to if a, um, uh, oh, I don't know, a hurricane. Right. So if a hurricane happens, and um, you have to shut down for a month as you get everything kind of righted with the ship, all those kind of things. There's two different ways of looking at it from a valuation uh, uh, portion. So uh, way one is going to be baking that into what has happened over the course of time. So like, let's say that you have um, a 12 month, last 12 months P&L, and then you're baking that into that last 12 months. And so, okay, well, hey, by the way, for a month there, I didn't have any revenue or for two months, I didn't have any revenue. Um, so, the way that you recover from that is by switching the buckets around, right? So, essentially, you're probably not going to cash out 100% on the front end of the deal, right? Whether that's going to be an individual or whether that's going to be a DSO. Um, they're going to be looking at it from a methodology of saying, okay, we'll give you less upfront and then we're going to do risk sharing. You talk about risk sharing. So, that's what it means is going to be either an equity portion, a larger equity portion into a holding company or and a larger earn up or an earn out. And actually I heard somebody call it an earn back this last week, which is kind of an interesting uh, way of thinking about it. So essentially just says, okay, look, over the next 12 months, 18 months, like just get it back to where it was and you'll make exactly what you would have made to start out with, right? So I like doing that from an equity standpoint because then there's a larger upside Mm-hmm. Uh, from an equity uh, portion rather than just saying, hey, just earn it back. And really it's all you who's taking the risk because if you don't right. get it back to where it was, then we're essentially taken care of entirely. And, and that's baking so, in, right? Yeah, exactly. That's baking so, in. So baking, baking out, out is where you,
0: you just go, la, 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 I didn't <laughs> see anything.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think of those like three monkeys, right? The whole like, exactly.
0: You're no evil yeah. student. Yeah.
1: yeah, exactly.
0: monkey. There's a fourth monkey no one talks about.
1: Okay. Have no fun. Ah, okay. That's good. All right. Yep. Yeah, that's very true.
0: Mm. Um, you <laughs> get me thinking about fun stuff, man. Okay, so. Uh,
1: well, this, is, this is
0: always a great interview. You know, we, we, we I think we've got great chemistry on here. So, yeah, completely. So I think that those methodologies are going to run into a, a stumbling block. And that's because most most re, most disasters that we have experienced thus far in business, anywhere, worldwide, have tended to be regional. And even whenever there's that old saying that uh, politics are local and all politics are local, something like that. You know what I'm saying? So yep. whenever we look at this, even if it was like the entirety of Japan or the entirety of England or the entirety of, never before in actual recorded history. Have we had something that affected us on so many different levels just worldwide, like yeah. literally worldwide? And it's not just uh, an effect of the healthcare market. It's not just an effect of the economy, you know, like a global catastrophe that affect the economy. It, it's every aspect of our lives has been affected by this. And I, I think that in a very reality, we're writing a new chapter in the rule book here. And all of us, no matter how informed we are, or how intelligent we are, are all just making our best damn guesses.
1: Completely. Oh, man. So you're uh, preached, right? <laughs> um, I, I couldn't agree more. And so like, I hear people saying that like, this for sure is going to happen on the back end, that for sure is going to happen. And I was like, look, nobody knows, right? It is, a, it is 100% a guess. And um, it may be an educated guess, but there's very, very smart people on multiple sides of the spectrum saying that they think that they have the, the right way
0: right and they're, and they're and they're completely opposite in their opinions completely opposite, That's yeah very very and
1: important yeah very much so so yeah I, I couldn't agree with you more and so the reason i like the reason i like this topic is because it kind of allows you to cover both sides right which is like okay so if it is an opportunity discussion right great right this is an actually pretty pretty big opportunity that only comes around like one time ever right so once it happened within the hospital environment guess what another consolidation doesn't just suddenly happen, right? m activity still happens every once in a while, but another big consolidation of an industry doesn't happen. Um, or if you wanna think about it from a risk mitigation point of view, yeah, I think there's reasons to think about it that way too, right? So I, I think that this is kind of an interesting topic for those two reasons, um, for sure. But um, so if, I, if I'm looking at just like, do you have time for like two more, two, two more? Absolutely. Oh, okay, great. Okay. I, was, um,
0: I actually have a couple questions for you. I'm going to ask them now and let you bake them in to your uh, discussion <laughs> or not. Um, what long term effect do you believe that COVID will have on the dental industry? And should, by the measure of the way that business is done, should older DSOs have access to better PE and be able to offer better terms?
1: Wow. Okay, I'm going to take the easier one first, which was the second question. Um, And uh, I think actually I would say a resounding yes on that. So here's the thing: whenever you think about um, uh, big things happening within marketplace, sometimes there's going to be a rush to safety, right? Mm -hmm. And if you look at dentistry in total, right? If I look at 2008, 2009, um, another one of my favorite stats is uh, or uh, things is going to be that whenever Bank of America was running through this issue in 2008, 2009, the only profitable part of their entire business, lending to dentists. That was it, right? And so, um, it's because dentistry has a 99.7% success rate whenever it comes to loans, so it's three out of 1,000 end up failing. And it's because, it's 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 something as simple as, if you have pain in your tooth, your option is to go to the dentist, one, or to pull it out yourself too, right? And most people just aren't going to choose option two, right? Whenever it comes down to it. And then once they get more educated, then suddenly it's like, okay, I wanna prevent this pain from happening again, right? The ways you do that is going to be, by the way, going to the dentist, right? Right. So um, the industry has been talked about as recession proof, et cetera, I'm not gonna call anything recession proof, but, um, but I will say it's going to be resistant in some ways. And so, Um, Because of that, I do think that there is still a large opportunity out there to consolidate more. And because you're consolidating a very, very, very safe industry, um, I do think they're going to have even better terms than most other industries. And here's the thing, do we end up feeling that as much in dentistry? I don't know. I think that if you compare it to, uh, I'll just keep on picking on car washes. If you, if you compare it to car washes, right? I do think that there are going to be advantages the dentistry has in that environment. Now, the harder question is going to be, what do I think is going to happen uh, kind of in the post-COVID era? And um, what I think is probably, or is, is going to be most, most likely, I kind of think about it from, you know, Occam's razor, right? So the easiest answer is typically going to be the right one. And so I do think that we're going to continue to uh, accelerate in terms of overall consolidation. Like right now, we're com- something like 17 or 18% consolidated in dentistry. And um, there's a lot of good white papers out there talking about how in the next 10, 15 years, we're going to be at 70 to 80% consolidated because you look I mean, at medical, that's pretty much where they are.
0: 2030, 2030, we're predicted by, I believe, the ADA to be 50%, if, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah, I would say that's going to be. Uh, yeah, I would say that's going to be on the low end of the spectrum.
0: Well, I think especially now with with COVID, I think it acted as an accelerator yep. for a lot of changes that were already occurring.
1: Yeah, because so suddenly we're thinking about it more from a risk mitigation standpoint as well, right? right? So there's now kind of two reasons to be thinking about it. Um, and uh, in total, I think that that is going to. I, I think that those groups are going to be driving the insurance bus a lot more. So you talked about how the smaller practices um, are going to have a harder time surviving just because they're not going to be able to negotiate the rates, especially the older PPO practices. Yeah, they're getting I, I actually agree with ends. you.
0: They're getting squeezed from right. both ends because reimbursements yep. are going to go down and costs are going to go up.
1: Yep. I agree with you. And so, um, however, I just think it's going to take, I think it's going to take a bit for us to get there, right? So I've, uh, most people I end up talking to the phone on, I'm big on making, not a, don't make a decision out of fear, right? And right. so the fear on this is gonna be, I, I really do think this is like five to seven years before. Yeah, they're, like, not, getting,
0: they're not getting cut in half. Kyle, I think it's the right. death of a thousand paper cuts.
1: Yep, I agree with you. Yeah, and those paper cuts are going to be, you're not getting paid as much on procedures, you're, it's costing you more to run those procedures. And then also you're really, really, really great staff. Can be attracted away by better offers by people who are saving on the other things, right? So, um, yeah. So uh, I think that that's probably where we're gonna go. Again, I just I really don't want people to be making decisions out of out of fear, right? Um, If you think strategically, you'll be be the
0: first consultant to dentists who doesn't. Really, you think? Oh man, they use fear to say Okay. There are two things that almost every consultant or every salesperson does to dentists. Um, The first is they sell them on fear of if you, if you go down the road, you're going down and not my road, I can't help you. Or if you don't go down the road, I'm telling you, you're going to be ruined financial disaster or the board's going to be mad at you or your patients are going to hate you. Don't drop insurance. Your patients are going to hate you. You're going to fail. It's all failure, failure, failure. It's fear. And the other one is the cost of a single crown. Everything is sold to dentists based upon the cost of a single crown. Been and we always hear, yeah, but doc, you only have to do one more crown a month. How many, how many more crowns do I have to do? <laughs> you know? Oh man, okay, so the second one,
1: if I can speak to that for just for a minute. Please. So, uh, right, to, so, whenever I started my career, um, I was with a, a large supply company, and uh, you can figure it out if you go to my LinkedIn. There page. have got <laughs> to be
0: classes in saying exactly that because it's so perfect. Oh, yeah,
1: 100%. So, uh, yeah, I, mean, I, was, I was I was responsible for selling lasers and then like, you know, comb beams, right, whenever they were coming out, all that kind of stuff. And it was like the return on investment calculators all had to do with that. And they also had to do with um uh let's see here, oh, what is it? Section one seventy nine depreciation schedule, right? Yes, absolutely. Section one seventy nine is like, oh yeah, all well, you have to do like you save thirty five percent. It's like, well, you don't really save thirty-five percent. Right. I mean, like
0: you didn't spend the money to begin with. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah, you would have gotten you would have gotten sixty five percent of this, you know, you could go exactly. out by buy a Porsche or whatever else, right? So um, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that side. That's a shame that so many people are doing that. The only thing that I would say that is a fear concept that I do one hundred percent believe in is like if you are older in your career and you are making the choice to cut back hours, don't do that. Why <laughs> just would you? Don't I do just, it. We hear let me, it all let me do all my appreciation
0: that dentist. You ready? Well, you know, I just. I don't know that I want to bring someone into the practice. I was just thinking that Betsy and I would just take a little arsenic every day and a little more until it just all ended. <laughs> that's what you're doing. You're slowly poisoning your practice. Don't think that right. way. Right. Moronic.
1: Completely. Yep. I, I couldn't agree anymore. And I my thought is, is like that's that is the worst way to make a decision, right? It just is. Okay. It's the worst way to make a decision. And People do it all the time. Like We literally talk to people every single week who have made that decision, and it is wrong. It's just wrong, and it's Not bad, sure. and you shouldn't do it. If, you, if, you, if you're thinking about cutting down hours, like just sell now, right? <laughs> Become right. an associate, just sell now. You'll get more in the long run if you do it that way. So,
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, in, 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 in true Huffpower form, I've, I've thought of another perfect example, yeah while
1: while, while you give me your example i'm gonna i'm going to move myself because i figured out that i'm running out of batteries on my Uh oh on my better run so we're good we're gonna keep on going
0: i was gonna say you know it's kind of like deciding that uh, you're not gonna live that long and so you decided to start shitting in the corners of your house it doesn't make any sense (laughs) it doesn't work for anybody don't do that right yeah completely um, how your, hair so, is, how your hair is truly green. You know, it, it's, it's green now, right? <laughs> it's like, uh, Oh gosh. Uh, there's some comic book hero that has green fire for hair. I don't know who it is. Uh, uh, green lantern. Yeah. Maybe it's a green lantern. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I have to ask know. my kid. So, anyway. um, so, uh,
1: but overall, I mean, maybe my thesis is going to be like right now there's still leverage the dentists have. Right? Right? Because there's so many groups that are trying to grow and they're trying to grow parallel to one another. And whenever you have that, you have a very competitive environment and like, you should definitely sort out what that competition can do in terms of valuation. There are groups out there. And whenever I say groups, I mean, there's, there are brokers out there. They're going to say, Oh, you can get X times your top line revenue every single time. That's just not true. Um, But you should definitely understand (laughs) what the differences are, right? So if you understand what the differences are, you may say just like the guy in Georgia, like, Hey, do you know what? I don't want to do this. Right. Right. But you may also say, Oh my gosh, this is a whole bunch different than what I thought. And at least you're educated, you know, and um, whether it's now, or whether it's later, at least you go through that education process.
0: So, okay. I'm going to ask you to do one last give for all of our listeners before we go. I'm I'm going to call this the, uh, the, the back of the nap and EBITDA. I always say EBITDA, you say EBITDA, you know, Whatever.
1: So uh, it's, it's hilarious to me whenever people said EBITDA. Some people say it like that, and I just don't understand ah. do that way,
0: <laughs> It's more fun to say that way, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> so <Yeah>. uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, we're just silly today. So anyway, yeah. I'm a dentist, and I wanna kinda know what my practice is worth. So I, I take, I take my, my cocktail napkin, cause I'm sitting at the bar, thinking about selling my practice. So, the first number I'm gonna write down is my what? revenue. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, they let's just do So, we're
1: gonna walk them uh, back. Okay. That's, so, your collections. Okay. Okay. So, let's, so let's start back. with production. Right? Let's, let's, let's start with production, right? So, the first number that you useless. might wanna know is gonna be production. What'd you say? Production's useless.
0: Give them the key I, I agree things. with
1: you, but like, hey, if you're saying the stop from the top, start from the top. We'll start from yeah. the top. Okay. okay so I would not start with production. I don't like never. it. Right. I agree. Yeah. Okay. So I don't like it. it so the um, first thing if you do is you write
0: down your production, your gross production right. Per, right. per year. Right. right <laughs> Cross you it zip out. Zip your <laughs> pants and you look at it. Right. Because that's what you're doing. Because that's all it's good for. Right. Throw that napkin yeah, yeah. away. Now write down your yep. collections. Yeah, and there you go. something that makes sense, Kyle. I write down my collections.
1: All right. So write down your yep collections. Then what you're going to want to do is you want to write down um, kind of all of your main costs that you have out there. So the easiest way of rather than doing back in napkin is if like if you have a PL to start from, that's the right. easiest way, right? Because you want to know what your what what all of the different um, uh, costs is that, or are that you have with your business. Right. Um, and then what you want to do is you want to start backing out some of those costs because your um, your CPA. Is doing certain things with your tax return to save you money, right? So, whether that's running He's an auto calling shit business. stuff,
0: it really isn't, but kind of is. There you go.
1: Yep. Open,
0: you don't have to call so I'll
1: give you some examples of stuff that I've seen, right? So, I mean, I see people who buy gold through their supplies. I see people. Oh, yeah,
0: ad backs are, who, are huge. huge, huge, huge. Oh,
1: yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there's tons and tons and tons of things. I see people pay all of their kids at least $7,000 to be, right. be models of the dental practice, et cetera. Right, so I mean lots and lots of ways of doing
0: it. I have an annual wanna... meeting at Augusta, I mean my living room.
1: Yeah, great, <laughs> right. yeah, exactly, those are expensive. Um, so uh, anyways, so you, wanna have, you wanna know what all those are. So essentially you're gonna just circle those numbers and say, okay, look, that's not real, right? So uh, I'm gonna circle this back because this is actually money that I'm taking, I'm just doing this for tax purposes, great. Circle all of those numbers, add them up at the bottom, right? Because so that's your total amount of add backs, right? So then what you're gonna to wanna to do is you're gonna say, okay, I'm paying myself this amount per year. So what is how much you're paying yourself as a dentist, right? That's not how much you're taking in distributions. Mm-hmm. That's how much you're paying yourself as a W2 employee of your own business. Some people spend no money on it. I would say that's a great way to get audited. Some people spend very little money on it. I would say thumbs up, that's great. And some people spend all of their money and don't take any net income distributions, which I do not understand, but I can't tell you how That is a very bad,
0: bad tax strategy. Fire your CPA, oh, like, one who advises you better.
1: Yep. Uh, we just we just appraised a practice in Florida. There was a $4.3 million practice. Each one of the doctors is making more than 600000 They take it all as W-2. I, I'm i speechless. It's just like, how on right. earth? Like, just
0: backwards. Anyway. It's, it's, well, you know, they are very giving people, and they believe that the U.S. government needs every bit of help it can right.
1: get. Yep, exactly. Yeah, they're doing good things with that money. Yeah. Um, So uh, anyway, so what you're gonna do is you wanna know how much you're paying yourself there. And uh, then finally, what is your net income, right? So your net income, that's the distributions you typically think of, right? So what you wanna do is you wanna add all three of those numbers together, and that comes up to your SDE, so seller's discretionary earnings, right? So that's all three different ways that that an owner can get value out of
0: practice. So your collections, Yep, you're gonna take out of your collections. Yep. You take out your collections, all your ad backs. That means all the shit that you really buy for yourself and your personal use and your family. That is not really a yep. business expense, but you lie and say it is. Then you're going to take out. Yeah.
1: So you're going to your, find your W-2 income, right? So you take the adjustments that you have. So ad backs, adjustments, right? So you take your ad backs, you take your and W-2 take two your income, dividends add, out,
0: and what's you're yep, left and then we'll,
1: with is what? Yeah. So essentially that is your seller's discretionary needs. If you add those three up, that is seller's discretionary needs. And the reason I like to go there first is that shows how much money you are making out of the practice a year in different ways. Right. And then so tell you a broker do for, whether
0: or not a young dentist should buy the fricking practice.
1: Right. Completely. Yeah. We have to do a return on investment calculation to make sure that it, it, it floats. Right. All right. those kind of things.
0: So um,
1: that's the old way of kind of figuring out. Now what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to take your total amount that you are doing in the practice, right? So not how much the practice is doing in total. Let's say you've got a million dollars worth of uh, a million dollar practice and 800,000 of it is going to be your activity. $200,000 is hygiene, right? So you're going to take that $800,000 and you're going to apply a multiple to it, right? And that's going to be how much are you going to be paid on the procedures that you're doing? just so it's back in the napkin, let's say it's okay. 30%, right? Okay. 0.3, right? So we take that 30% and then we minus that amount, right? So that 30% of is going to be 240000 right? So we're going to minus that amount from that SDE in order to get your EBITDA. That is your EBITDA. That's the easiest way to get there.
0: All right, guys, there you go. Now you actually know how to calculate your EBITDA. And uh, whenever you look at that number, multiplied by four to six times and there's different reasons for it being higher my suggestion is always whenever you're looking at risks multiply them times the highest risk possible and when you're looking at benefits multiply them times the lowest risk possible and what that comes out with is a way for you to overlap your costs and benefits and that ground where they overlap that's your safety margin i hope that makes sense to people
1: yep and so if I can add one more thing to that, I think that one of the biggest pitfalls that we see is going to be the people are just going to say, okay, I'm being paid X times EBITDA. And I think this is a good deal that they actually haven't done a return on investment, um, a calculation over the course of time. So if you're planning on staying with the business over the course of five or 10 years, what does your return on investment, uh, most likely scenario look like,
0: right? Do you recommend and a break point analysis for that? And if so, for how many years?
1: So, Personally, what I want to see is I I like to do a five year return on investments um, just because what I'm factoring in is going to be one one sale of the DSO to another strategic investor. So essentially you're getting recap at least one time there. Right. Beyond five years, it starts to get a little bit wonky as far as the different options. They're going to be you <laughs> last
0: say? year, last year, five years at this time is a bit wonky. You know, you That's could have another true. COVID folks. You could have another COVID. So right. I think those are really good guidelines. And uh, Kyle, I think you really did a lot of good for some people explaining that. So thank you. Um, yeah, if you well, wanna, hey, it's my you know, pleasure. I love talking with you. Well, I, I love talking with you too, man. We always have a lot of fun. So folks, um, if you want to know more about selling your practice and you're thinking about going the DSO route or not, you can contact Kyle Francis. And Kyle, what is your, what is your contact information there?
1: Yeah. So uh, Professional Transition Strategies is the name of the business. If you go on to www.professionaltransition.com, um, or if you just call me, so uh, my number is going to be 719-459-1021. I'll be happy to chat with you. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think if you go on the website, there's a lot of other kind of neat little calculators and resources that you might be able to use. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's a good time to understand options and then it's a good time to kind of implement that leverage that we're talking and about.
0: As, as I always say, it's always a good time to understand your business better. Again, folks, totally this is Doc Huffpower. For the Dear Doc podcast, thank you for joining us and listening to the sound of my voice drowning on for at least an hour. Uh, really appreciate you guys joining us here. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Oh, and last thing, there's no disclosures involved. I don't make any money off of sending anyone to, anyone to Kyle. I just think he does a lot to help Dennis, and uh, I'd love to see him. Uh, I'd love to see him prosper. Now, if you're interested in selling to MB2, please reach out to me. I do make it a profit on that because I do get a broker's fee or a discovery fee or affiliate fee, whatever you want to call it. And I think it's very important that you know that because you should always know when someone is being paid to help you have a fantastic day. Again, this is doc Huffpower. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for listening to the dear doc podcast, your source for the business and legal questions associated with your dental practice. Don't forget to subscribe to the Dear Doc podcast on all major platforms.